Everyone struggles with fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, or some emotional issue. But what if I told you that you could exchange that life for one of victory? Are you interested? My name is Mark McKinn, and I'm joined with Dr. John Woodward. And together, we want to guide you into a complete and victorious identity in Christ. Our desire is for everyone to know Christ as Savior, Lord, and life, so that you can live victoriously, disciple strategically, and counsel effectively. Welcome to Glimpses of Grace. Welcome to Glimpses of Grace, episode number 18. What a great day that the Lord has created. And John, I am so excited and really, I feel honored to be able to sit here at this seat behind this microphone and talk about things, biblical things, true things that help people live every single day in victory. It just seems like just this amazing thing that God allows us to do. God's grace sure is amazing, like the great hymn says, and not only is it amazing in terms of our salvation, but also in our transformation and healing, and it sure is an adventure to continue to open up God's Word and explore these wonderful truths. And our vision here at Grace Fellowship is that we want to guide people into complete and victorious identity in Christ, and so a big thank you to all of our listeners, but also an invitation If there is something that you have heard or you wish you could hear on the podcast about ways to help you live in victory, send us an email, uh, gracefellowshipinternational.com is our website, but you could send an email to hello at gracefellowshipinternational.com and uh, just let us know what is that topic that you would love for us to talk about and maybe in an upcoming episode we may have a Q&A where we'll take all of these questions and John and I will answer them. That'd be fun. Sure will. So, John, what's the word for today? Well, how about Second Peter chapter 1, where it talks about the blessings we have as believers in the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises, mm. that through these you may become partakers of of the divine nature. Sometimes as we're discipling others, Mark, um, there's a sense in which the conversation is about how do I achieve, how do I gain these blessings? And really this passage is saying that if you're in Christ, God has granted us these blessings, but we need to be partakers of the divine nature by grace to see the fruits of this in our life day by day. Yeah, that's so good. Well, John, I am fired up about today's episode, and I pray that it's going to be a tremendous help to people, especially people, I can't speak for you, John, but like me, who grew up really more in a legalistic environment, and and not necessarily for me was that at home, but more in my church setting. And it was more of, you know, here's what the law says, so here's what you must do. But more, really, if I'm being honest, here's all the things you can't do. So you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And I remember as a kid thinking, well, if I become a Christian, is there anything that I can do? So today, we're going to talk about grace, we're going to talk about the law, we're going to talk about holiness, 
And I think this is a really important topic because some people are going to say, well, wait a minute, guys. Now, if you all start talking about grace, then people are going to think they can do whatever they want to. So that's why we got to mix some, you know, either law in or, you know, or, or something else in here because, you know, people are just going to feel like you're giving them a license to sin. So I guess I want to start off, John, and say, what is grace? And I know you might tell me, well, Mark, grace is God's unmerited favor, but what is it? Like, let's just start there and have this discussion. Well, when we talk about grace, we see the need for grace, right, Mark, in terms of how God is a holy and just God. And his law, according to Romans 7, is holy, just, and good. So nothing wrong with the law, but what's wrong is 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 us, because uh, we've inherited that condition from Adam where we are separated from the life of God that we um, are condemned in Adam, and we, we live that out until the Lord redeems us. And even after salvation, then the process of spiritual growth involves the very issues that you're raising today, Mark, about what is the purpose of God's law? If it's not a stair step or a ladder to earn God's salvation, which we know it's not for that purpose, it's, in the words of Galatians 3, a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. But then what is it in the life of the Christian? And so that's where we need to define grace clearly, that it's not only God's unmerited favor, but it's also the divine desire that he gives us and the enablement to joyfully do his will. I love how it says it in Philippians chapter 2, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I think that's a good definition of that grace for Christian living. That is so good. And I love how you said, John, that the problem is not the law, it's us. And I think that's very important because it's really easy. And I think even uh, we got to be careful to not just blame something else. It just seems to always be easier to blame something or someone else than to take responsibility ourselves. And the other is just talking about, you know, the law is a tutor, right? The law really was, and the purpose was to show us our need of a savior, we were never intended to keep the law. God knew we couldn't do that. It was to show us, hey, you guys can't fulfill this, and the only way to get to heaven would be perfection, right, without Jesus. But you're not perfect. The law shows you that. Therefore, you need to give your life to Christ. You need to surrender to him and allow what he has done to cover you. Right. So there was a quote here in a book that we have. It's called Stunned by Grace, uh, written by author Frank Friedman, who's a friend of the ministry. And I love what he says here. He says, The grace of God should stun us, overwhelm us, and make us leap for joy to proclaim the awe and wonder of the goodness of God. But we don't understand its depths because we've only begun to scratch the surface of its glory. And I thought that was a really, really good quote. And the truth is, you know, John, I said this to you right before we started recording. You know, when it comes to the grace of God, I so much desire it. I'm not really good at giving it. And I think the truth is for all of us is we may teach its theology, but I'm not really sure that any of us, and I'm sure there's some of you out there that are, but most of us are probably not that good at living it out. And so when the New Testament letters begin, grace to you and peace from God our Father, I think that's a good attitude that we need in our personal fellowship with each other, isn't it? To be vessels of God's grace in our relationships. 
Yeah, and you know, it's it's important for us to understand because you know, Paul writes about this in the book of Galatians, trying to mix in grace and the law. So, what do you say to somebody John, that comes in in a counseling session, maybe someone who's coming from a church background who really feels like we have to mix the law in in order to live victoriously because that's really the ultimate goal of today is, like we always say, we want people to live in a victorious identity. So, you know, some people are going to think, I got to adhere to the law in order to have victory. So how would you answer that? It's really helpful for us to remember the purpose of the law. As you mentioned a moment ago, Mark, uh, we need to see um, that the law was not a means of salvation, but a standard that shows us we need a Savior. It reminds us of 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul was coaching young Timothy uh, to correct people who were teaching false doctrine. And he says, Know this, that the law, meaning the law of God, is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, and he goes on to describe a list of sins there. So it shows us that the law is a articulation of God's righteous standards, and when we compare ourselves to that law, we know that we need his forgiveness and grace. So in terms of the Christian life, we just need to keep in mind that the law has a purpose to show us our need of a Savior, but then when we talk about the abundant life, the victorious identity we have in Christ, Often, Mark, we go to Romans chapter 6, and in verse 14 of that chapter, it says, Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under law, but you're under grace. So here we see that grace is also an economy. It's a a blessed position we have, which enables us to love God and love others by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, then we find out that the fruit of the Spirit is going to be the virtues of Jesus Christ produced through us, and as it says in Galatians 5, 24, against such things, there is no law. Mm. Yeah, you know, back in, Frank made another quote as you were talking about that, that I was seeing here. He says, grace and law are two diametrically opposed systems that must be kept completely separate from each other. If you add grace to the law, then the law's holy terror is diminished. If you add law to grace, then grace loses its freeing power. Our mistake is that we fail to keep law and grace distinct from each other. When we mix them together, we unwittingly distort and destroy the power and purpose of both systems. And I love the fact that you're talking about that and both of those being different. And really, you know, when I was thinking about this, you know, as I read Paul, it it seems as if he's not using the law to try to put believers into check. But I think the other important thing is is that Paul taught through identity. And I think it's it's when you lose your sense of identity is when you're going to make this statement. Well, you know, if I'm just under grace, then I can do whatever I want. And if that's how you live your life, then you do not fully understand your identity in Christ because you're living more as if you're a sinner and not if you're a saint. And I know, you know, some people are going to ask this question, well, wait a minute, are you guys saying that you can be sinless? And we're going to answer that in an upcoming podcast. But if you're living out of your true identity, then you are not going to want to be an abuser of grace. 
And I don't remember, John, who it was. It was an evangelist, and, and I, I, don't, I don't remember. It might have been Tony Nolan. It might have been David Nasser. It was one of those two. But I remember them talking about this idea that so many Christians wanted to just walk around, do whatever they want, however they want. Of course, that's what we would talk about being the flesh life. But then he talked about just Christians almost live as if they have a grace credit card in their pocket. And every time they sin, they can just swipe that card, and then they get forgiveness. Well, Romans 6, 1 says, you know, shall we continue to sin so that God's grace may abound? And Paul says, absolutely not. So if you're just thinking, oh, well, you guys teach grace so you can do whatever you want, the answer to that is then you don't know who you are. Would you agree? Indeed. And I think the Spanish translation of that is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No way, Jose. <laughs> um, but the uh, verses that follow show us that it's our identification with Christ in our co-death or co-resurrection that gives us that identity that we celebrate. And then we're, we're counseled here in the same passage of Romans 6, not to present our members as instruments to sin, but rather to present our members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so we need to be cautioned that sin has an addictive, enslaving aspect to it, as our Lord taught. He said to us in John chapter 8, the one who sins, meaning intentionally sins, becomes a slave of sin. So we need to see that the truth sets us free, and that truth is not license, as you were saying a moment ago, that it doesn't matter how we live. Quite the contrary. Mm -hmm. The principle of sowing and reaping still occurs. The Lord knows how to discipline his children, and we do care about having eternal rewards as God lives through us. So there are number of topics we could talk about in terms of a balanced Christian life, but we see that a proper understanding of grace is the desire and power to do God's will with joy. And as you said, if we know that we're saints, a saint is someone who's set apart from sin unto God, and therefore our behavior needs to be consistent with that identity. I think it's important too, right, that we remind our listeners that we died to the law. So when we've talked about the idea that we've been crucified with Christ and buried and resurrected, that we died to to the law. So some of you may think, well, Mark, John, tell me how to die. No, no, no. You can't. You've already died to it. So it's not a how do I die to the law. It is the reckoning of the truth that you have already died to it. That That's what happened when you became a Christian. You were crucified, buried, and resurrected, and so you have freedom from sin's power, right? So it's it's and it's not the idea that now, okay, now that I'm under grace, I'm free to sin. No, you're free from sin. So sin no longer is your master. It no longer has dominion over you. You know, another quote I wrote down here from Frank. It's a good book, by the way, for those of you that are interested in learning more about grace. Again, it's called Stunned by Grace, and you can order it off our bookstore. But Frank says, don't go back to the law and start performing again to try to get what you've already received. I think that's so good because, again, I think one of the tools of our flesh, John, is our flesh wanting to try to use our works to placate God. So trying to get, you know, this idea so then we can justify what's happening 
and say, oh, well, you know, I did this or I did this or I didn't do that as if somehow God is, you know, grading on a curve or from a merit system that, okay, oh, well, I, you know, I was going to discipline you, but because you did this, then I'm not going to. And I think for me, that would be like, you know, let's say, um, you know, I, I did something wrong as a kid, but before my dad got home, I, I mowed the yard and weeded it really well so that when my dad came home and started getting on me for my disobedience, I could say, whoa, 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 dad, 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 did you not see I mowed the yard? I even weeded it. I blew off the driveway as if that would say, oh, oh, son, well, I, I saw here that you wrecked my, you know, my sports car, which my dad didn't have one, but, you know, whatever that is that you've done. Oh, you were going to be disciplined, but now that I see that you've mowed the yard, all is forgiven. And I think sometimes, though, that's how we're living. And I just want everybody to understand, God doesn't deal. God's not making deals. So, like, if you do this, now he's going to turn his head. If he does, then he's not just and he's not righteous and he's not holy, because that's another word that we have to add into this conversation. It's not just grace and law, but it's also holiness. So we have grace, but not at the expense of holiness. A great soundbite there. And Mark, I think you're bringing out the need for us to clarify the difference between punishment and chastisement or discipline. So punishment has to do with our responsibility uh, when we sin in terms of God's holiness and justice. But isn't it wonderful that at Calvary, the Lord Jesus Christ paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Isaiah 53, predicting the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. So we're not going to be afraid of or motivated by a fear of punishment. However, In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So whether that's persecution, whether that's other things that come in to correct us and to get our attention, those things are always going to be motivated by love. And Bill Gillum does a good job teaching that, and I believe his book, Lifetime Guarantee, that whenever we are disciplined by the Lord, and 1 Corinthians 11 and Hebrews 12 talks about that theme, it's always going to be out of love. It's always going to be remedial. It's always going to have a a teaching component to it. And therefore, because we know that we are already pardoned and secure in God's love, then we're not going to dread uh, trials. We're going to learn from them, and we're going to know that nothing will separate it from God's love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which goes back to identity again. Right. And I think that's that's so important. You know, John, it, Dr. Solomon used to say this. I, I've, I've heard him say this on a couple of videos. This whole idea that when a lost person comes to us, We take them directly to the cross for salvation. But yet when a believer comes to us with a pressing issue, we give them a referral to a psychologist as if the cross is only for salvation. And I think we forget, especially when we talk about the idea of sanctification, and I know we've talked about this in previous episodes, that God is saving us from the very power of sin The cross is not only what's going to get us into heaven when we die, the cross is also what's allowing us to live in victory today. And so we have to be Christ-centered. We have to be cross-centered. Grace is God doing it all from beginning to the end. And then, of course, he's called us to be holy, right? He's called us to be 
set apart. And I think you would agree with me when I say this. I think that's a problem with so many people in the world today. Why would I want to go to church when my life looks exactly like you? That's what a lot of people are saying to their about their Christian neighbors. Well, my kids get in trouble, your kids get in trouble, and that's true, right? There is no uh, miracle cure once we become Christians. Everything's not cotton candy and uh, unicorns and skittles and you know everything else. There's there's problems. Jesus Himself said, "In this world, you're going to have trouble, so you're going to have trouble." But we have a Savior who is our Lord, our Savior, our life who's giving us the power that we have in us to be set apart, to be different. And I think that's just a good question for us to sit down and look at because the truth is it's easier to live via law than it is grace. Even though I think we would say, I don't know, the grace is easier, but for some reason we just love the checklist. Mark, when you're talking about how Sometimes we present the gospel of salvation for the lost person looking for an answer, but the struggling believer, we don't realize that the message of the cross is relevant for them. It reminds us of Luke chapter 4, our Lord quoting from the prophet Isaiah, that his anointed ministry, he came to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are captive, to give new sight to blind eyes. And we believe that that is his continuing mission in and through us as believers. But we need to be able to present not only the gospel of redemption, which promises heaven, but the gospel of restoration, because he says he's come to restore our souls. He's come to heal those broken hearts. But Mark, many times when people are doing counseling using the Bible, if they don't emphasize God's grace and they don't bring out the wonderful truth of identification with Christ, it can come across, even though using the Bible, it can come across as kind of a self-effort system to say, well, Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. The problem is sin. So just grit your teeth and obey. And maybe that's a caricature. But sometimes, as we've talked to people who've tried that type of counseling, there is a sense in which they're stuck in Romans 7, right? Chapter 7, where what they don't want to do, what they end up doing. And what they want to do in terms of their new spirit, they end up not doing. And in that context, it's really, Paul, I believe, saying this is what happens if you have a law mentality with a self-effort attitude, you end up saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Mm-hmm. The answer to that question, who, is the Holy Spirit making the person and work of Jesus Christ real in and through us. And, of course, that's what opens the door to the glorious answer in Romans chapter 8. Yeah. So another resource that we have here at Grace Fellowship uh, is a book by uh, Dr. Lee Turner called Understanding Grace, uh, How to Implement It in Your Life and Church. It's a, it's a great, great book. I love what he says here. Grace does not pressure believers to perform. Grace merely provides an environment where they are free to respond to the Spirit's leading. Great insight from that book. You know, Mark, one of our themes in this podcast is victory and how that's based on grace. In 1 Corinthians 15, though, there's a strange verse. Verse 57 makes this comment that the power of sin is the law. That's verse 56. The strength of sin is the law. We might think, well, how in the world does the law of God uh, stoke the problem of sin? And the reason why is that the flesh cannot please God. Uh, You know what it's like if you pass by a sign and it says, do not touch wet paint. What are you going to do? Got to touch it to make sure. And so there's something about a law emphasis that actually stirs up the flesh. 
But the very next verse is our, our theme verse, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives, that's a grace word, gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we're not minimizing that God's righteous standards are important, but we're focusing on the how of living this Christ-centered life, which is by grace through the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit. So I have to tell on myself, you, when you're telling that, uh, do not touch. So a couple of years ago at our church when I was pastoring, we had a, a couple of musical groups that came in. So, of course, it took all day to set the stage up. You know, they just set up their screens, all their sound stuff. Well, another group was back in our lobby, kind of behind the stage, and they were setting up all of their merchandise. I walked through there three or four times. I mean, there's shirts, there's all this stuff out on the tables. Never one time did I have any inkling in me, John, to touch anything. I mean, I, I stopped, look, oh, it's a cool shirt, you know, took a picture for my daughter, like, you know, you might like this. I'm not kidding you. It was like five o'clock, an hour before they opened doors. They put a black kind of drape over the table and a sign that said, do not touch. Uh oh. And I walked by, I've walked by two or three times already. And I walked by, and not only did I touch it, John, I did. I took a picture of my hand touching it because I don't know what it was. Like, as soon as you said I couldn't touch it, I wanted to touch it, even though I had walked by two or three times and never touched it. So I just needed to confess that. I feel so much better. Well, You're a miracle worker. It's, it's good to confess our faults one <laughs> to another. And I think we all see that, that that strange phenomenon happens when we have a, a law focus that actually stirs up the flesh. But aren't you glad for that promise of victory through our Lord Jesus Christ? You know, when we talk about grace and defining it, Mark, I, I love that passage in Titus chapter 2, where it describes grace not only is God's favor in pardoning us through salvation, but also that idea of it being his enablement to live victoriously. So it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Isn't that cool? It mm-hmm. teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It also encourages our hope, the next verse, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So our zeal for good works is really based upon the the new creation we are in Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and how God has given us a new heart. And that heart is actually one that desires to please the Lord, to love Him, and to love others. So what a wonderful provision that we have when we understand grace in a biblically accurate and balanced way and see that it's relevant for salvation and sanctification. So before we move to the last question that I want to ask you, I want to sum all of this up. So how do we respond to the listener who's maybe has a better understanding now? Okay, I get grace, law was a tutor, called to be holy. So how do we wrap all of that up? And as you're thinking about that, uh, back to this resource that we've talked about before, the Resolving the Misunderstandings of the Exchange Life by Dr. John Best, he says... As he's talking about, freedom does not come from balancing two things that have entirely different purposes. And he says, unlike balancing size and speed on a football team, 
Grace cannot be balanced with the law as if one were a trade-off with the other. Grace means far more than God's forgiveness for our sins, and it does not mean leniency at all. And he says, grace means that God himself has done everything necessary to enable us to receive, experience, and manifest life, his life. That includes forgiveness, but encompasses so much more. The entire gospel of Christ is a gospel of grace from first to last. And it is not a gospel of our doing our best on our own and God's grace filling in where we fall short. So how do we finish this up? Grace, we're living in grace. The law was a tutor to show us we needed a Savior. We're called to be holy. How do we sum all that up? Maybe we should just ask the question, who were we married to, in a spiritual sense? Because Paul used this analogy, didn't he, in Romans chapter 7, where after teaching the wonderful message of being identified with Jesus, he says that we were, before salvation, married, you might say to Mr. Law, if I can mm-hmm. kind of uh, bring out that nuance. But when you and I are redeemed, we die at the cross with Jesus, but then we're resurrected, and now we're married to, we might call him Mr. Grace, we're married to Jesus. So just like a person, as Paul gives the analogy, if um, they're married to someone, uh, they divorce, marry someone else uh, without biblical grounds, they are committing adultery. But however, when a person dies, then they're freed from the law of marriage, right? So a widow or a widower can remarry in the Lord. So we need to ask the question, who am I married to? We're no longer married to Mr. Law. We're not under the law. We're not under a performance-based system, uh, an achieving system. We're married to Mr. Grace, Jesus. We're under a receiving system. And with that in mind, then we're going to see that he not only is in a new covenant relationship with us, but he lives in us by his Holy Spirit to give us that desire and power to please the Lord, which in a sense fulfills the moral requirements of God's law. Yeah, that that was very good. In counseling and in coaching, we talk about it in the sense of it is not doing in order to be. So it's not you trying to figure out how to figure all this out so that God will love you. He loves you. I just want you to understand that. If, if you're running, if you're walking, if you're driving, if you're at the coffee shop, wherever you're listening, God loves you. He just loves you. And he's not loving you for what you're doing. He loves you because he is love. That's who God is. And on the flip side, what we teach people is if it's not doing in order to be, it's being in order to do. So, yes, for all of you that are really big into the law, there are things that need to be accomplished. John and I, we, we, we know that. Like We can see there are a lot of commands in Scripture. Those commands, however, are not done in the power of Mark and John or whoever it is that you are as you're listening. It is done through the power of Christ. So we start with who we are, and our doing then flows out of our being, not the other way around. Some theologians also, Mark, if I can add to that concept, talk about three aspects of the law. There's the ceremonial law, such as how to offer sacrifices in the Old Testament or the idea of cities of refuge. There's a civil law, uh, such as how Israel was organized. And obviously those things are canceled at Calvary or under grace. The moral law, because it's a reflection of God's character, continues on, but not as a, a legal system. It carries on because the Holy Spirit is righteous. He lives in us. And the admonitions of the New Testament, 
such as in 1 Peter chapter 1, where it quotes the Old Testament, Be holy, for I am holy. Well, we already are holy in our spirit. We are already set apart for God in our position. But what Peter is saying is, is positional, is spiritual, but let it be practical. Mm -hmm. May it be demonstrated, not by self-effort, though, but by joyful cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So that's the balance that we need. It's not a compromise. It's not a mixture. But it's keeping uh, clarity in terms of uh, how, as it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. How? Who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Holy Spirit. That's a great, that is a great, great, great point of just reminding the listeners about holiness is not coming from what you do. That's good. John, let me ask one more question before we go. There could be people who are listening, as we've been talking about some misunderstandings of the exchange life, who are going to say, hey guys, this is just positional. This is just a positional truth. In the book, Resolving Misunderstandings of the Exchange Life, Dr. John Best speaks to this, and he says, you know, positional truth and a theological concept intended to help us understand biblical truths. He says, the term is used in two ways. First, there are certain things that God accomplished at our salvation that are in, you know, actuality true, whether we understand or knowingly experience them or not. And then he gives the you know, examples of our crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension with Christ, our new identity as righteous saints rather than sinners. But then he says the other way the term is used is, he says, there are certain things that God declares about us after we have become believers. They are not actually true here on earth, but God counts them as true because he only sees us in Christ. And he says, for example, God counts us as righteous in Christ, even though our real nature is still sinful. So how do you respond to the person who's asking the question, is this just a positional truth? Well, it's a good question, and I'm glad you brought it up, because positional truth is important. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God, and that's our position. Hallelujah. However, it's more than positional, isn't it? It's also spiritual. In other words, not only does God count you and I pardoned and righteous because of the finished work of Christ when we repent and believe, but also God has given us spiritual righteousness. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, 24, in that area, it says that the new man, that means who you are in Christ spiritually, has been created in righteousness and holiness. So it's not only a positional blessing, it's a spiritual reality in us like the oft-quoted verse Mark 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. So we're saying it, it is positional, but it's also spiritual, but also a third concept, it needs to be practical. Mm-hmm. That's not automatic. That's why there are admonitions in the New Testament for us to grow in grace and so forth. And I think we could use Colossians as an example. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, God transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And praise God that that's positional. It's a done deal. Hallelujah. What a savior. But also a spiritual. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Wow. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right. But also it needs to be practical. So we see as in often the pattern in the epistles, the doctrinal is foundational to the practical. So in chapter 3, it goes on to say, Do not lie to one another. 
And what's the basis for that? Since you have put off, past tense, the old man with his deeds. In other words, because it's positional, and because, in the words of chapter 3, 1 to 3, your life is hid with Christ and God, therefore put off these um, deeds such as lying. So Mark is positional, praise God, is spiritual, how amazing, and it needs to be practical. And that practical application, though, is not by self-effort, but again, it's by cooperating with the Holy Spirit by grace through faith. And I think people really struggle with the practical because what the truth of the Scripture says doesn't match how they're living. So when they read, you're a saint, they have a hard time believing it because they don't see themselves as saintly. Or you said I was made righteous, but I'm not living righteously, so therefore it must be positional. I love how you have defined that in all three ways, because if we just take one and then bank our experience as if that's the truth, then that can create some really you know, dividing lines of us not being able to really understand what Scripture is saying to us. Maybe the marriage analogy would be helpful, too, that when a husband and wife are married in Christ, we see that there is a union, as it says in Genesis we leave our parents, we cleave to each other, we become one flesh. But there's also a document called the marriage license. So you've got the marriage license, positional. You've got the marital relationship, spiritual. But then the practical, okay, what do you do in your married life? Well, husbands love your wife. Uh, wife, respect your husband. That's the practical outworking of that marriage day by day. And all three need to be recognized, don't they? It does. Let me read one more quote here from Dr. Best because he says, You know, our experience as believers is to flow from what is true about us. What is true about us does not flow from our experience. But he says, if we say we have to wait until we die to go to heaven to experience the reality of our righteous identity in Christ and our union with Him, then we are misunderstanding what is meant by the word positional. Using the term positional truth becomes a cop-out when it pushes things into the future that are intended for the present. And of course, I'm thinking about this, you know, daily victory that we're wanting people to listen into. So then he ends it by saying, because a believer's essential identity is his spiritual identity in Christ. This positional truth is the reality God intends for us to experience right now. God intends the spiritual reality of who we are in Christ to be the foundation of how we live our life upon earth at this present time. So true. Amen. Well, John, it's usually at this time that we have a glimpse of grace, and you have one of those for us today. I'm thinking of a counselee from years ago who was a Bible college graduate, loved the Lord, um, however, struggling with uh, depression, anxiety, and things. And as she walked through the process of Christ-centered counseling, God revealed to her her union with Christ and the real meaning of being in Christ, being pardoned, and Christ in her having the ability to live as a daughter of God and wife and mother. And the Lord did a wonderful work in her heart. And she describes that when she understood the Galatians 2.20 message about being crucified with Christ and Christ living in in her, she said it was like a a football stadium where the lights get flipped on, you know, Mm -hmm. in the evening is such a wonderful illumination. But she had this background of more of a legalistic view of the Christian life. And she asked me one time, John, why do you read the Bible? And I said, because I want to. And she looked at me like, oh, you want to. You see, if it's a a legal obligation, 
the joy tends to drain out of it. But right. we see it as God's love letter from with grace glasses on, you might say, then it really is food for our soul. And it's a, a joy and privilege as well as um, an opportunity. Yeah, praise the Lord for that. Here's something from Dr. Salman's book, Discipling the Desperate. And it says that, and you and I have the privilege of going to South Africa coming up, and maybe when this is broadcast, we'll already have been there. But it says here in Dr. Salman's notes, a lady in South Africa had a history of lesbianism. An Exchange Life conference was held by a couple trained in our office in Cape Town. The Holy Spirit let his light shine upon her life, and she ran out of the auditorium. The wife of our trainee followed her and gently prayed for her. Then the Lord could continue his work in her. Well, because of discovering her identity wasn't based upon her sexual orientation or her flesh patterns or so forth, but it was being a new creation in Christ, he goes on to say, she let her partner go. However, she was unemployed. But then God gave her a new job, and having been trained in mechanical engineering and architecture, she then continued on, and he says that she has a a radiant new personality walking every step with her father. She wants to write a book, giving others hope through the cross. So we praise the Lord that Amen. the good news of salvation and abundant living is not only true in one country, but internationally, because God's word is truth for all people. And speaking of internationally, no matter where you're listening today to the podcast, as we close, I want to remind you that John and I do counseling and life coaching for people all over the world. Uh, we've had people from Ireland, from Germany, from Africa, uh, China, I mean, all over the world. And so I just want you to know that wherever you're listening from today, you may be thinking, man, I wish I lived close to Grace Fellowship International so I could sit down with John and Mark. Well, guess what? There's this little thing called Zoom, and it allows us to meet no matter where you are. So if you're interested in counseling or in life coaching, please reach out to us at hello at gracefellowshipinternational.com and let's set up a time where we can do an assessment so that we can help guide you into complete and victorious identity in Christ. And then also, if you haven't already, we would love for you to like, follow us on social media. You can find Grace Fellowship International on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So just search for Grace Fellowship International. You'll see that little G logo and give us a like and follow us and help spread the word about who we are and what we're doing. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. Thank you for listening to Glimpses of Grace. We pray today guided you into a more complete and victorious identity in Christ. If you would like more information about Grace Fellowship International, please visit us online at www.gracefellowshipinternational.com. If you would like to contact us, please send us an email, hello at gracefellowshipinternational.com. We hope you have a great day.